Hello, I'm Jacob Kruger, and this is the Write Your Screenplay Podcast. So my guest today is Stephen Bagatorian. Stephen is an award-winning writer. He wrote All Eyes on Me, the Tupac movie. Um, he's done huge budget features. He's done tiny little independent film. He's done everything in between. Uh, he's also a tremendous mentor here at the studio, working with some of our top writers in our ProTrack mentorship program and our workshop program. And so thank you, uh, Stephen. I'm so glad to have you on the program today. Thank you so much, Jake, for having me. It is a pleasure to be here. So I'd like to start off by talking to you about work for hire projects, um, because so much work comes out of the work for hire world. And, you know, you've worked on projects that have originated with you, but you've also worked on projects that are, have not originated, that have come from producers. And I'm curious about how do you find that passion and that voice when you're working on a project that didn't start with you? And how do you bring that when when you're working on a, on an assignment? Okay, that's a terrific question, and it's something I think that a lot of screenwriters don't really give enough thought to when they get into screenwriting, because so much of learning to write screenplays is so focused on you know, especially on the feature side, just spec scripts and original scripts, original scripts, original scripts. But then you find yourself in the business and it's like all of a sudden you're in bizarro world. It's a complete reversal of what you've been doing the whole time you've been like learning to write because, you know, the dirty little secret of screenwriting is that over 95% of the work you're going to get as a professional is going to be on assignment. And so it's a very specific skill set, you know, to um, to speak to your question directly. It's it's a very specific thing to learn how to bring your passion and your voice to an idea that you didn't originate that might be dealing with subject matter you have no particular interest in. And I know for me, it was one of the biggest struggles in my career because it was terrifying. And it's very much like you know, it's on the job training. You're, you're hired by a studio, you know, and they say, we're making a movie about, you know, uh, a wacky, you know, person who is a dentist and, you know, he's got like some problems with his family. And like, you know, certainly you're passionate about dentistry, like, oh, who's not, you know, and you've got six weeks to deliver a draft, go. And, you know, on some of my early jobs, it was really, really scary to me because you know, there's a legitimate reason to be afraid at that point, because if you fuck up, then it is going to be difficult to maybe, you know, continue to work in that space. So at the beginning, I tried way too hard to kind of follow instructions and meet the brief that I was given by the studio executives. And I naively thought that they wanted you to just to listen to them as a screenwriter. And I quickly found out that that is actually not what they really want. They, they want you to kind of hear their notes and hear the spirit of their notes, but then they want you to do something creative and original and address the heart of the note without literally just becoming a, a dictation machine for their idle musings and the things that they happen to just throw out in a notes meeting, you know? They understand that you might have a better idea, that you hopefully will have a better idea, but you got to figure out how to make it your own. And so my first couple assignment jobs, I was miserable with the drafts that I turned in. And at the end of the day, when the assignment was done, 
I was left with nothing because, you know, the studio decides, hey, we're going to go another direction. We're either going to make this, we're not going to make it. We're going to bring in another writer. But I didn't even have a sample script to show for the time I spent on the project. And that was really upsetting to me on top of the thought of people reading those drafts and just thinking that that's what I do. And so I kind of resolved fairly early in my career after my first couple assignments that I was never going to kind of fall into that trap again of writing what they wanted on an assignment. And instead I had to flip the way I was thinking about it and just really be more confident as a writer and as a professional storyteller and just say, look, these guys hired me, these people hired me because ostensibly they like what I do. And so I'm the professional storyteller here. And of course, I'm going to listen to everyone's opinions and I'm going to be collaborative. But at the end of the day, it's my name on the script that says, you know, by Stephen Bagatorian. And, and so I have to feel like I'm putting myself in there. And so I really started getting a lot more weird and idiosyncratic with my approach to studio assignments. And then I found, you know, uh, strangely that the more I did that, the more the studio executives would actually like what I was turning in. And the more I would get studios wanting to hire me and companies wanting to hire me for, you know, repeat jobs because they liked the passion and the spark and the sort of kinetic energy that they would get back from my assignments because my assignments would feel almost like they were spec scripts because I would approach them in, in such an odd way and, and push the characters to the front as if it was, you know, like a story I'd wanted to tell my whole life. And I had this very unique perspective on it, but that was a tough skill to sort of develop and to like find your way in. And in a way, the thing I love about assignments is that you don't have time to overthink you know, and I'm sure, you know, you can relate to this as a screenwriter. We're all very neurotic. You know, we all are constantly having like the decision fatigue of being a screenwriter because any story we write is hundreds upon hundreds upon thousands of different, distinct, discrete decisions that we have to make. And it's mentally taxing, but it's also scary because, you know, at every point you're wondering like, oh, could I do it this way? Could I do it that way? Could this character instead be a little more like that? You don't have time for all that shit on an assignment. It's like, you got to just pick a lane, be bold and just go for it. And for me, I once I kind of embraced that, instead of being terrifying, there started to feel like there was something invigorating about that, you know, and and also just not being too precious with it. And I think the longer you're a writer and the more you have confidence that your career is not going to be over tomorrow, you can stop being so precious with every single job and every single draft. And you can just, you know, take some take some shots and do what you think is the best thing to do in that particular moment on that particular day. And ultimately, you'll probably get another bite at the apple. And if you don't, you know, oh, well, but at least, you know, you just kind of look at yourself in the mirror and you say, that's the best I had that day. That was my best idea on that day. And there are times where I look back on scripts I wrote with a lot of pride. And there are times I look back on scripts I wrote and think, what the fuck was I thinking? Like, like that's <laughs> such a bad decision that I made in that scene there. But, you know, uh, you can't overthink everything. And I think as writers, we are constitutionally disposed to overthink things. And I think it's a real danger when you're working on original material that we can go round and round and round in circles for years on a passion project, but then we'll suddenly deliver something that might be extraordinary in, you know, four weeks to a studio. 
you know, I never finished my original spec scripts in four weeks, Jake. <laughs> like I, I obsess I'm, over them. Neither do I. <laughs> yeah. I obsess over them. I obsess over them for months or years and years, you know, and that frustrates me because I know that if I've got the proverbial gun to my head with a studio and there's a paycheck and my career hanging in the balance, I know that I'm capable of writing a lot faster and, you know, writing at high level quickly, but it's still like, it's a balancing act because you come back to your own work and you don't have that same real world deadline. And I've heard I've heard other writers, like I have heard Scott Frank talk about this before, and it was heartening to me to hear that even someone like Scott Frank, who's you know one of the great writers, screenwriters of the last several decades, that he himself had the same issue, that he was frustrated, that he really delivered for the studios and he fucking killed himself on studio assignments. But when it came to his own personal passion projects, he would just fiddle with them for years, you know? And I could totally relate to that. So, you know, we're all like works in progress as screenwriters. I'm a lot better at some stuff now than I ever have been. But, you know, there's also aspects of my work ethic where depending on what's going on in my life, you know, I, I've got a better work ethic some years than others. And that's really one of the trickiest parts of being a screenwriter too, is like balancing your real life with the job and the studios don't give a crap about your real life. <laughs> and so you just, you have to figure out how to, how to get the material done. And it's been, you know, during some of the worst times in my life, that I've had to deliver on some of the most high profile, high pro, like, you know, high pressure jobs. And in general, I've, I've done it, but you know, it's, it's a tricky balancing act. And so I think I talked around the question a lot, but, but basically that's, that's the thing working on assignments. It's a, it's a really specific muscle and you just kind of have to jump in there and it is very, very uh, intense. And at times, really genuinely scary on the job training. But I think if you can go through that process as a writer and come out the other side, I think it does make you a stronger, more confident writer to think, oh, I can tell a story about anything because it's not about the story per se, it's about my voice. And you know, me as a writer, figuring out an interesting way to tell a story because ideas at the end of the day are cheap, but you're unique voice and the way that you jump in there to tell a story, the angle you take on it. You know, I, I always tell writers that I work with, it's important to have a great idea, but I don't care what it's about. You know, I don't care. Like it can be about anything, you know, it's, it's really just figuring out how do you tap in to yourself in a way that feels consistent that you can depend on. So then you can do that. You can reach into your bag on a studio project on your own personal project or when your friend, your friend who's a writer sends you a script and they need help from you, like you can say, oh, well, here's how I would solve that. Here's how I would do that. So it's like all these things keep us sharp. And I think it's really important as a writer to just kind of put yourself in these scary situations to prove to yourself you can do it. And for me, that's what the studio assignment world became and has been. It's like, it's a very high stakes game of chicken in a way. It's like, all right, can you do this? You got a big studio expecting you to deliver and okay, here we go, go. You have X amount of time and you know, it's an adrenaline rush, but it's not easy. Yeah, well, I, I love what you're saying about, uh, you, you use a couple of words that I think, Old, mm -hmm. idiosyncratic, your voice, right? And these are the things that, unfortunately, the screenwriting books don't talk about, you know? Right. Um, and and right. truthfully, because as you know, most screenwriting books are just not 
written by screenwriters, uh, just like most screenwriting classes are not taught by screenwriters, uh, which is crazy. Um, but you end up with these kind of reverse engineered, you know, formula, plot, you know, um, this kind of very fictional way of looking at the piece. And, you know, so many new writers that I work with, you know, are obsessed with this idea, like they have the one idea, right? Like, this is the idea. And then there's the terror that I can't even talk to anybody about the idea, because God forbid, I talk to somebody about the idea, and they steal the idea. Right. And I'm completely screwed. Yes. And, you know, and, and of course, there are there are psychopaths everywhere. And, you know, some people are dumb enough to steal an idea. But mm -hmm. the truth is, if you're pitching the right person, they've probably already heard your idea. Yes. Um, and, you know, my, my fiance, Lacey, uh, uh, used to work uh, with the CEO of CBS. Hmm. And he always used to get really angry when a producer, when a, when a writer or a producer would come in and be like, I'm going to tell you a story you've never heard before. And he'd be like, are you kidding me? I've heard every story, right? Um, the, the, and, you know, we see as teachers, we see the same ideas come again and again, just like when you're working for hire, you see these kind of ideas circle around and you start to realize that it, it, it's not the idea. Right. It's not the idea that you're selling. Ideas are a dime a dozen. And the truth is you could take a great idea and make a terrible script. Yeah. And you can take a terrible idea. And, and this is one of the great things about it because a lot of for hire projects, you're like, okay, and, and where's the movie? You know, and, and you, you'll get these terrible ideas and it's your job to transcend them, right? And to go, okay, how do I take this terrible idea? You know, I've got the Hungry Hungry Hippos board game. How do I turn it into a movie that that actually matters to me that I can connect with? And um, and I think what you're saying about the boldness is such a is such a, a good way to think of it. You know, like if if I knew anything I did was going to be accepted, what would be fun? You know, like yes. what would be cool? Yes. What would be exciting? Yes. You know, um, that, yeah. I mean, that reminds me of uh, something that I've I've said often, and um, I should uh, give proper credit because a, a friend of mine actually said this to me early in my career. Uh, my friend uh, Marshall Todd said this, and Marshall is an amazing writer, and he's currently uh, the co-creator of a show on Hulu called Woke right now. And I've known Marshall forever for like 20 years. And uh, early in my career, you know, uh, he was giving me advice on pitching, and I remember Marshall said to me, "Steve, when you walk in there to that room and you pitch on jobs, have a strong fucking point of view." And you're not going to get every job by having a strong point of view, but I promise you, you'll get some jobs. But if you walk in there and you've got kind of like a middle of the road, wishy-washy, sort of a common take that you could imagine dozens of other writers walking in there with, then you're not going to get jobs because you're walking in there with a take that's going to be just like the other cat who walked in, you know, half hour before you and pitched on that same project. And so that always stuck in my head and it was a great piece of advice that I got. And it made me feel really fearless walking into rooms to pitch because I just always thought like, okay, what's the worst that could happen? I don't get this job, but the best that could happen is 
I get the job and I've got this wild take that I'm actually really excited about. And I get to actually take a crack at something that, that I think is going to be cool and is going to be fun and is like a left field sort of an idea. And, you know, some of the biggest projects I've gotten in my life uh, in terms of studio films have been when I've walked in and I've said things that really could have landed like lead balloons. And, and frankly, sometimes they have. Sometimes I've walked in and, you know, and it's a gambit that, you know, could go either way. But I've walked in and I've said to, you know, top executives at studios uh, that their take on a project that they've outlined that they're looking for, I've said to them, I think that sounds like a disaster. And I think that's the absolute worst way you can approach a film like this. And uh, if that's what you guys want to do, then I'm not interested. But let me tell you what I would do with this material. You know, and that's like a dicey thing to say to a big executive at a studio, because it can go, you know, broadly speaking, that can go one of two ways. And they can say, well, thank you very much, you, uh, you asshole. And, uh, you know, looks like you don't, you're not the guy for, for this job. And good day. Or in the case I'm thinking of, uh, when I said that to the top exec in the room, the junior execs all burst into laughter and the top exec was a little prickly, but he said to me, okay, genius. Okay, smart guy. What's, what's your take on this? Why am I so wrong? What is your take on it? And then I launched into a very impassioned pitch on this big high profile project. And, and at the end of it, um, all the junior execs and everyone just kind of looked at their boss and they were like, well, fuck, that actually is a lot better than what you pitched. And it turned into like a really funny moment where even the top exec was kind of grumbled and he was like, yeah, actually we weren't thinking about it like that, but you're right, that's pretty phenomenal. That's a great take on this. And, and that was great. So, but it was a gamble. You know, when I walked in that room, I knew, but I also knew I was like a dark horse candidate on that job. So in my head, I'm always thinking, I'm always, hopefully, I'm trying to think strategically at every stage of my career, whether it's like how I format my screenplays, what ideas I'm selecting, or just like, yeah, my, my approach when I walk into a pitch meeting. Um, if I know that I'm not the top candidate for this job, and I'm one of many, I'm absolutely thinking, how am I going to stand out? How am I going to be memorable? Whether they love me or hate me, how am I going to get some kind of a reaction in the room that's going to be memorable that they're going to be talking about when they go to their lunch break? Because I don't want to be boring. I don't want to be the boring writer who walks in and pitched what the other five writers pitched. And I think that's so that's smart. It. I think that's so And because also, even if you don't get that gig, then they know who you are. Yeah, right. And they remember you. They yeah. remember like, oh, you were that crazy motherfucker who walked in here and insulted my boss. Yeah, yeah, I actually liked your take. But of course, I couldn't hire you. He hated you. You know, like they you stick in their head. Yeah, there was um, there's a writer uh, named Jane Martin uh, mm -hmm. who doesn't even know who I am, uh, although I got her so much work. <laughs> but uh, when I was a producer, her agent was brilliant. And she had this script that at the time was unproducible. Um, it, it was the story of a family dealing with the loss of a child. And, and at that time, in the late 90s, just nobody wanted to make a movie about a dead kid. And um, this script was so beautiful. You know, you read it and you just cried for days. Mm. And um, her agent had the best strategy, which is he would target young executives who didn't know better. <laughs> and, um, and so, and he targeted me and he sent me this script and I fell in love with the script and I fell in love with Jane Martin. And uh, I went to my boss. And I was like, we have to make this movie. You know, we have to do it. And just like every other development. And, and, and my boss went, dead baby, next. You know, like that was the, that was the response. Right. Um, and what happened was I got angry. Mm. 
And I put that woman, she doesn't even know me. She doesn't know who I am, but I put Jane Martin up for every open assignment. Wow. Right? Because I wanted to work with her. And I, and I never actually, she did write movies for us. I never even got to work with her. I never got in a room with her. Mm. But, um, but I put her up for everything that I could put her up for because I was so moved by that script. And, and to my knowledge, that script still hasn't gotten made. Right. Uh, but right. yeah. Yes. And it wasn't just me. This was her agent's whole game was mm. just shopping this unproducible script that mm. everybody loved and everybody wished they could make. Um, and so, you know, sometimes it's realizing like, if you sell the script you don't want to write, now you're going to write a script you don't want to write that's not going to really showcase your talent. Mm. And, and you're just going to end with a dead connection and you're going to end up fired, you yeah. know? Whereas if you come in and you're like, this is what I want to do. And I know it's a little crazy, but this is what I want to do. Best case scenario, you actually get to do what you want to do. Like you get yes. to see that artist. Exactly. Exactly. And worst case scenario, you build one of two things. You either build a connection who's like, I can't believe my boss is going with that crappy idea instead of this. Hmm. Or you get the person who's like, hey, this is the wrong project for you. Hmm. But two years later, they call you up and they're like, Steven, remember you had that crazy pitch? Yeah. I think I came up with a way to do it. Yes. This is new product, right? And so, you know, but but coming at it with that authenticity, you know, it, it is so, so, so important. And and remembering, you know, you use the word idiosyncratic a lot, a lot which I, but don't try to be idiosyncratic. Right. Try to be yourself, you know, like, just like you were saying, like if you were working on a spec script and don't, don't take away the edges of your script. Don't destroy the friction points of your script because you think you're going to sell out and make it Hollywood. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've always felt like there's a dialectic, right? Mm -hmm. There's pressure. You want the studio executive's job, the producer's job, your agent's job, your manager's job, right? Is to push the piece to be as, as commercial as it can possibly be. And your job is to present the purest possible version of what it should be. And when those two things happen in the right way, you end up with a dialectic that makes a better movie, right? That makes a movie that more people will see that still does a version of that pure thing you are trying to, to create. And it's a beautiful thing when that happens. Um, but what a lot of writers do is they try to give producers what they want. Uh, or what they think they want. And the truth is, if they knew what they wanted, they wouldn't be spending all this money on you. Right. You know? <laughs> exactly. Yes. That's how you actually convince them you have value is by bringing something to the table, you know? And and so, and like you say, I love that, that thought that you're saying to look at it like a dialectic. I never thought about it like that specifically, but that makes a lot of sense to me because, you know, it's not like what you and I are talking about is not like, oh, I'm going to be an artiste and I'm going to do just exactly my vision, you know, and, and screw all of you. It is figuring out a way to address the concerns, the needs, needs, et cetera, of the studio while still producing something that ideally is like a credible piece of art that is not just uh, a craven commercial stab, you know, something that has a soul to it, you know, and that's kind of high-minded and new agey sounding, but really that's what it is. Like you want to have a spirit to the material, a humanity to the material that is there. And that's your job 
as a screenwriter. That's literally your job in my estimation is to make sure that there's a humanity and a sense of, um, you know, ideally a, a sense of transcendence, you know, in the material, even if it's like a dopey fucking Hollywood movie about whatever, you can still have a glimmer of something in there that you as an artist are in charge of making sure is there. And it's your job to kind of protect the soul of the piece. Uh, I think the way that one of my favorite screenwriters, Tony Gilroy talks about this is he talks about finding the heartbeat of a story and how that is the thing he's always looking for above and beyond any other concern what is the heartbeat of the story and it's like it's kind of an ineffable thing but as a writer i think you know when you find like yes this is it like i put my finger on it this is the soul of this piece this is what makes it live and breathe i'm going to protect this element or this sequence or this character you know within an inch of my life because this is what the story is yeah, we were talking oh, yeah. in the pre-interview, right, yeah. about the idea that people get stuck pitching plot, right, rather than pitching structure, mm-hmm. right, or rather than pitching character. Yes, and, exactly. uh, and I wonder if if you can talk a little bit of it because you were saying you don't you don't pitch plot when when you go to pitch. No. No, I don't. I am I'm actively hostile at times toward pitching plot. And I'll even say things to executives in the room where I'll just say, look, you guys, let's be honest. You know, we all know that the plot of the story is going to go through endless changes and iterations in a best case scenario as we develop this and it moves toward production and at every round, everyone's going to have notes. Those are all going to affect the plot. I don't really give a shit about that. Okay. You guys have read my sample scripts. I've been writing stories for a while, screenplays, and you know, I am aware of how to structure a screenplay. Okay. But let's put that to the side for the moment. Cause honestly, the plot could be any one of, you know, a thousand different things. And I can give you plot points, but that's not what we're here for today. What we're here for today is to talk about this character and why they are a a broken, uh, you know, messed up person, why they are the exact last person in the world who should have to go through this particular version of hell that this story is going to put them through. But here's why they're fucked up. Here's why they're the perfect protagonist for our story. Here's the crazy cast of characters they will meet. And here is the the arc for all of these characters, how it intersects with the themes and the ideas of this story. Here is the the personal crucible of hell they go through. And here's how they come out the other side. And if I do my job properly, I'm pitching you ideally an incredibly emotionally engaging story that people, executives, human beings can feel resonance with in their own lives. And so because you're pitching character, you're talking to human beings about things they can feel. And if they can feel what you're saying, then that's what you need. That's where you've got people actually excited you know, about a story plot elements to me are just really academic. And like we've talked about, you know, there's a, an incredible um, focus and uh, just an absurd focus, like an, an, uh, like a, an over an overemphasis, I should say on plot that gets kind of doled out there in all these uh, screenwriting books by, and by all these so-called screenwriting gurus and people who talk about things as if there is a formula, you know, the formula basically is Western storytelling structure. Sure. As identified by Joseph Campbell, the hero's journey is beginning a middle and an end. And yes, someone's going through something that has, yes, this metaphorical resonance of a person going through a journey of their life, essentially a heroic journey. 
that's fine. But beyond like a really broad identification that this is what we do with Western storytelling, as opposed to like European cinema, you know, Asian cinema, other cultures that have different storytelling traditions, other than a broad kind of sense of that, this idea of breaking it down into this taxonomy of, you know, this is the exact moment, this much must happen and that must happen and this must happen. I, I just think that there's a level of absurdity to that because the most successful writers who I know don't think like that. And the people who've written these books, you know, that have proclaimed this from on high, no offense to, to Sid Field or to, you know, Robert McKee or to anyone else, but it's, it's plain to see that these are not people who've had big screenwriting careers. And so, you know, it's, it's odd to me that the industry and like the way that screenwriting has been taught for so many decades has revolved around, you know, a coterie of formulas created by people who've never written successful films and have instead reverse engineered these, you know, structures based on films that they're cherry picking and that they're using for their examples. But that's why I really enjoy working with you, Jake, and working with the school so much is because, you know, from talking to you about screenwriting, I know that we both come from a very similar place, which is much more character focused. And we're trying to actually identify like the heart and soul of a story, not just uh, fill in these like rubrics of, you know, oh, this happens here, that happens there. Those are the scripts that even if they get bought because a studio has some interest in them, if it's just something that follows a formula, the first thing they do is they fire the writer and then they call up someone else who thinks about writing the way that we're talking about it. And then those writers are brought in to fix the story. You know, so when I, when I work with screenwriters, what I always say to them is like, don't think about your structure so much. Don't be the person who best case scenario is gonna get fired immediately because you have this over-reliance on structure and you're not writing characters right. To me, the first principle, like if we go back to first principles, you have to have a, a character, a main character who is engaging and in fact, fascinating. And I always say to writers, I don't give a shit if your main character is likable or not. I think that's a false goal. I think your main character has to be only one thing in my mind, and that's fascinating. And some of the greatest characters in cinema history are thoroughly unlikable, you know, but they're fascinating. Charles Foster Kane, unlikable, he's a prick. <laughs> But Orson Welles in Citizen Kane is fascinating, you know? And so that's what you're going for. And, and so that's what I always say with writers is a lot of times people are so concerned about, oh, I'm worried about my second act. I'm worried about this. I'm worried about that. And sometimes I just look at a writer and, you know, kindly and, you know, as with as much encouragement as I can, but still trying to be honest, I say, look, I think you've got a larger problem here, <laughs> you know? And the larger problem is <laughs> that your main character is like, utterly cliche or utterly boring and completely not engaging. So before we get to your second act problems, all of that's academic, all that's moot. If you don't get an audience and a reader to fall in love or fall into fascination with your character in the first five pages, at the most 10 pages, but honestly, I'm thinking five pages. I think one, I think. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> ideally, yes, yeah. I agree. I agree with that 100%. And it's like, people don't realize how critical it is to do things quickly, efficiently, and dramatically. You're right, it's page one, page one, two, three. If you haven't hooked a reader by then and they're five pages in and they don't find your main character interesting, yeah, you're dead in the water. Like, forget the rest of your script. I don't wanna talk about the rest of your script.
you know? It's like a date, you know? Yes. You show yes. up, you swiped on Tinder, you show up at the at the coffee shop, and mm-hmm. you know in like a minute, if you totally. just want to finish your coffee or your drink or and get the hell out of there, or if yep. you're actually interested in having a conversation. And yes. I think it's it's the exactly the same thing, especially, you know, movies get made because of A-list stars. And, you know, you've worked with a lot of them, you know, and you're working with a Denzel, for example. You know, how many scripts does Denzel have to read? You know, he's looking if he's not hooked on page one. Yep. Why is he going to do the movie? Right. Yep. Why is he going to read to page two? He's got a stack of other scripts of people who would love to work with him. And yes. so I, I think it's, and you know, people also just to, the way you think about fascinating, fascinating is not a performative thing, mm-hmm. you know? So sometimes writers try way too hard to be fascinating, right? To write fascinating characters or good characters or like you said, likable characters or unlike, or anti-heroes or right. right. And like, where does fascinating come from? Fascinating always for me has come from like going inside and finding like what part of this character is me, you know, mm-hmm. like, what part of this character lives in me and either like, what is it that I don't understand about them? Or like, what's the odd thing that I see them doing that mm-hmm. I don't know why they're doing it? Or what's the thing that like, uh, that that pushes against what seems to be their dominant trait? Like, mm-hmm. I, I'm not, because I think if you try to write fascinating characters, it's like trying to write great dialogue, you know, it right. just becomes pretentious and false. Whereas if you just go like, hey, what actually intrigues me about them? Like, mm-hmm. oh, oh my curious. If you can fascinate yourself. Yes. Yes. You know, and then it becomes a craft thing because sometimes you are fascinated by the character, but it's not on the page yet, mm-hmm. you know, and then it's a craft thing about how do you get that fascination onto the page. Um, yeah, that's a great point. And and I think for me, a lot of times it has to do with, you know, letting yourself be quote unquote naked on the page and not being afraid of being earnest. You know, like a lot of my writing early in my career was seen as being very dark or like uh, quote unquote edgy, which is a word I hate in Hollywood. But, you know, this idea that, oh, like the first script I wrote that kind of launched my career uh, was a script about a 12 year old killer. And people thought that was a very dark story and like, oh, wow, this is so provocative. You're writing this really violent story where within the first five pages, we see this 12-year-old child actually uh, shoot and kill his own father, um, shoot him in the chest, you know, seven times. And then as he tries to escape, a bunch of uh, his father's friends grab this 12-year-old, beat him to death and leave him for dead in the snow. And that was like the opening few pages of the script that I wrote called Weasel that really launched my career. But I never looked at it as a dark, you know, twisted story or something. For me, it was a very earnest story about a young kid who'd been a victim of abuse. And so were, so was his sibling. And in this story, this 12 year old kid was actually standing up for his younger sibling who didn't have a voice. And, you know, I 
set it in kind of like a mythical futuristic inner city that was like something out of the crow meets in city and i kind of spun it as this like urban noir gangster story that ultimately turned into a big mystery where we follow with the detective who catches the case and has to put the pieces together of why this 12 year old ended up killing his father and we see a lot of the details of the story unveil uh like unveil themselves through flashbacks and and it turns out the detective has a crazy connection in his own life to this kid who's now dead so it was this sort a twisty escalating mystery but people saw it as very dark and they thought like wow weasel's such a dark story but the people who actually read it and got to the end of it were just like oh you know like this story made me cry because it was ultimately really sweet it was a really sweet story even though all the trappings and the bells and whistles were like guns and violence and murder and blah 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 but to me like i hate cynical, ironic storytelling. I hate writers who kind of hide behind a cloak of irony and and like hipness and pretension. Um, you know, that's not my bag. And for me, I am trying desperately to tell incredibly earnest stories. Um, and I don't want them to be, to be uh, boring. I don't want them to be didactic. And so of course they get dressed up in metaphor and they get dressed up in things that could be perceived as you know dark and crazy and wild and whatever. But ultimately at the core of it for me, uh, fascinating to kind of bring this back to what we were talking about, fascinating characters, ultimately for the writer to write those characters, you have to risk being earnest. You have to risk actually allowing yourself and like a piece of yourself to really come out in the material in a way that you might think is, oh, that's going to be too sappy. That's going to be too this or that. But to me, the art of being a storyteller is to walk that line where it's not sappy. You know, it's not silly to have a character break down and cry at the end of a story. It's only silly if you haven't properly set it up and earned that moment. You know, and so I think people are afraid a lot of times of emotion. And if you're afraid of emotion as a writer, you're in the wrong fucking business. You know, you have to be comfortable enough with emotion where even if you're a, a fucked up, emotionally maladjusted person in your waking life, which all of us are to some degree or another, I feel like you have to be the best version of yourself when it comes to writing stories. You have to be the version of yourself that you would aspire to, the version of yourself that's maybe more broad-minded, more empathetic, more willing to sacrifice for other people, like all that shit, you know? I, I kind of feel like that's my own sort of personal philosophy on writing, but I feel like I want my stories to have the best of me in them. So even if I fail in my day-to-day -day life at times, as we all do, at being a good enough you know, friend or partner or whatever to people, you know, none of us are perfect, but I feel like we should aspire to like the best version of ourselves in our writing. And to me, that comes back to empathy and it comes back to just letting yourself have an open heart on the page. And, and I think that's something that, you know, writers, if you don't think about that, I think you're ignoring that at your peril because it's an emotional thing that we're doing here you know it's emotion that's the key to all of this and it doesn't matter how perfectly structured your stories are if you don't have like real emotion at the core of it then you've got nothing and yeah. so to me that's the when i talk about protecting the essence of a story to me that's what it's also about is like protecting that heart and soul that you know makes people give a shit about a story and to do that you got to go to those places yourself and you know it might sound like cornball to say to people like oh i cried while i wrote this scene 
but you should cry if you're writing a scene that's supposed to engender that emotion in other people. You should absolutely get to that point yourself. And if you don't, then there's probably something wrong. You're probably not pushing it far enough. You're probably not going someplace that's really touching you. And so consequently, it's not gonna touch anyone else either. Yeah, I feel in the same way, like I wanna be surprised as I'm writing. Hmm. And I'm always looking for something that I didn't expect. And, you know, because I always think if what I end up writing is the same thing I planned, then the chances are that anybody who's really experienced is going to see all the places that I'm going to go, you know, on page one, you know, and, and also I'm, you know, everybody has walls, you know, and everybody is good at wearing masks. And, and I, I just like everybody else have the mask that I'm super comfortable wearing. And I feel like if you start to peel away those masks, what you start to find is the things that you don't expect and the things that you didn't know you could do as a writer and the things that break the rules. And, and that's where the, that's where the real growth comes from. And like you said, um, selling a script, buying a script is an emotional choice. You know, it, there's this idea, I remember, you know, I, I started as a producer and my boss always had, you know, graphs and charts and, you know, whatever, which we didn't make them up. They came from the CEO, you know, and it was like, it was like, this is what we're looking for. And there's a quadrant and, you know, and then, and then he'd end up optioning the movie about the mother who abandoned her children, but it was really a gift. And he'd option that movie in different forms again and again and again and again. Why? Because that's what happened to him, you wow. know, and or that's how he was rationalizing what happened to him, mm. you know? And, and, and at the end of the day, like buying a movie is an emotional decision because it costs so much money, you know? Like if you had $50 million, yeah. you know, don't put it all into a movie. That's crazy. <laughs> You're probably not going to make your money back. <laughs> right? Most movies don't make their money back. So, you know, there's no rational way to invest $50 million or $100 million or, or even a million dollars or even like a $50,000 indie film. Like there's no rational way to make that decision, yeah. you know? And so that doesn't mean that people are going to do things that don't appeal to them, but to actually, and that doesn't mean that people won't go, oh, that's a good idea. I should listen to that. that I should do that. But, mm -hmm. but at the end of the day, the one they actually move forward with is the one that creates that passion in them. Mm -hmm. Right. That that creates that emotional effect. And I've always believed like, you know, who's going to produce your movie? The person who's like your tribe, you yeah. know, like your people are who going to who, like, uh, you know, the way that I met Stephen Ramphus Myrtle, who's an independent producer who teaches at the studio sometimes. Uh, I reached out to him because I was looking for new teachers. And he said, well, let me introduce you to the guy who's written the best script I've ever read. And uh, and that movie is about to get made, right? Uh, fingers crossed. We fingers got a, crossed. a director on board who I love, and we got a great team. So we we will see in yes. twenty twenty one. Yes. So you know, but but that's the kind of passion you need to incite in a producer, especially at the beginning of your career. You know, when you're Aaron Sorkin, the passion yeah. you have to incite is, "Hey, I'm Aaron Sorkin, and I'd like to right. make a movie." But yeah. at the beginning of your career. You need someone to read your script and go, I'm going to take a risk on this person. You know? Yes. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. And I, and I've been so heartened to get that kind of a passionate response and have 
people who have been boosters of mine or, you know, just people who've really uh, gone to the mat and fallen in love with certain scripts of mine. And Ramphus has been wonderful, you know, and working with him as an indie film producer has been just a delight because he brings all that passion to the material. And it's like you say about finding your tribe, you know, he's totally someone who I feel like is in my tribe and I would make movies with Ramphus for the rest of my life because he's brilliant and he's hardworking, he's respectful. And I mean, and clearly he's got excellent taste, you know? <laughs> so I, I really do think that you need to, to throw that passion in your work because then yes, it goes out into the world and it resonates with people, you know, who are going to then suddenly kind of be vibing with the work in that same kind of passionate way. Cause if you don't put the passion and the emotion in the work, then there's nothing for people to hold on to, you know? Because it's like you say, the shit is so expensive. To make a movie, it's like, it's a massive ask of somebody. And yes, people are risking their jobs. They're maybe risking the future of their company. I mean, it's a big, big ask. And so emotion has to be there for everyone, you know? Because even the executives don't want to feel like they're producing something that means nothing. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, uh, you know, having been on both sides, you know, a lot of the times we think that like producers are these like weird aliens who only care about money. And, you know, it, it's the exact opposite. Like everybody wants meaning in their lives. You know, it, it's, it's just that a lot of them very rarely get the chance to actually even talk about that, you mm -hmm. know, because it's so much about, you know, who's attached and, you know, like where do you get the money from? And, you know, when, when you, I remember, um, Early in my career, I got to work on, on a story with a, a very big producer who actually went on after that to, to run the network. And mm -hmm. um, I remember him saying, you know, to me, he's like, you know, these meetings are the highlight of my day. Wow. He was like, because this is the only time I get to talk about this. Mm. And, and I wasn't the only writer that he was working with but I was coming at him maybe a little bit differently mm. than a lot of the writers he was working with, you know, where it wasn't just about like the plot. It was about like, what are we saying? You know, like, what is this about? Why does this matter? You right. know? And, and then, and then we found our way to figure out, um, then we found our way to figure out how do we make this commercial and how do we sell it and you know all those all those other layers but um but you know starting starting at that place of human connection mm -hmm. you know first off it's just easier you know it's like really hard to come into a room and go when a man finds out you know like it's yeah, right right it's so awkward <laughs> and weird yeah you come in and you're like this fucked up thing happened to me when I was 12 and I've been trying to make sense of it. And that's why I was so attracted to this crazy story, you know, about this boy. And, you know, no, I didn't shoot somebody, you know, but I know what it's like to want to defend somebody and feel like you can't, you know, yeah. when, yes. when you open yourself up vulnerably, you make that emotional connection with somebody that, and this person's going to have to spend years in a room with you and they know it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Exactly. And I think that's actually a really brilliant thing to do, Jake, what you just said, opening yourself up and being vulnerable in a pitch meeting too, because it also uh, displays a certain amount of bravery and a certain amount of comfort with yourself that I think really that ultimately, whether consciously or unconsciously, 
I think that is what executives are hoping to find. They're hoping to find a writer who can be bold, who can be brave, who can also reveal something of themselves and be comfortable talking about emotions and all these things maybe, you know, you're not supposed to normally talk about with someone you just met. But in that context, you're trying to talk about this highly emotional thing, which is the story that you're hopefully going to be building together. So yeah, I agree with you. I think it's it's a really good thing, you know, just as a as a strategic gambit, but also just as a human connection thing to walk in and say, hey, this is the reason why I want to tell this story. And yeah, it's because this fucked up thing happened to me when I was a kid, or I had my heart broken when this really horrible thing happened, you know, just recently. And, you know, this is what I see in the story that connects to me. And then whether they say it or not, you know, they are human beings and there is a part of them that's going to appreciate you revealing this part of yourself and it's going to cause them to engage with you emotionally in a different way, you know? And I think that's really, really important because you don't want to stand on ceremony and just be a robot when you walk into these rooms. Because like you say, a lot of these people, you know, their jobs are stressful and boring and, you know, believe it or not, this might be a highlight. This is like a human interaction with a storyteller. And I always try to, again, take it back to first principles when I walk into a pitch meeting. I feel like, okay, if I consider myself someone who's a writer in this era right now, it's movies or it's comic books or it's TV or whatever. But at a different point in history, not that long ago in the grand scheme of things, we would have been sitting around a campfire and I would be telling you a story. And I feel like that's why I actually love pitch meetings. And my my manager likes to tell me that I'm a mutant because I'm the only writer he represents who genuinely loves pitching. And I love pitch meetings because I put myself in that mind state, whether it's an assignment or an original pitch, um, you know, you're walking in there and, you know, that meeting room, that antiseptic kind of quasi hip Hollywood room or today the Zoom room, that is your campfire. Mm -hmm. And these people are giving you some time, some of their precious time to spin them a yarn. And so if you can walk in there, like you said, reveal something to yourself, make some kind of emotional connection and then say, listen, and this is why this story is the story that I want to tell more than anything else in the world right now. And let me let me tell you about it. Ideally, the rest of their lives can fade away for a little while and you can get them locked into a little bit of a trance with you and you can take them somewhere, tell them a story, give their brain and their mind like a little bit of a reprieve from whatever they're stressed about. And, and when they come out the other side, it's like they did see a little movie, you know, they did, they watched a show, they heard a story and hopefully they come out feeling a little bit invigorated, you know, like, wow, you told me a story. That was a, that was a cool story. Thanks. You know? And so whether they hire you or not, like, I feel like I just always want to take it back to first principles. Like I'm here, I'm a storyteller. This is my job. And it's not about being overly strategic. It's about looking at these human beings in their faces and trying to connect with them and just tell them a really great story. Yeah, I, I love that about you. And you know, I'm one of those weird mutants too. Uh, <laughs> but what's funny is I started the opposite. You know, I started as a person with tremendous social anxiety. And mm. I, I was afraid to even pick up the phone. Like I was afraid to call somebody. Mm, wow! Into a pitch meeting with somebody, it, it was terrifying. That, that's crazy. That's crazy. Knowing knowing you now, Jake, that is actually crazy because you're you seem incredibly com comfortable now, like talking and you know and, being well, out there. I ended up with this job as a producer, and I didn't have a choice. Mm. You know? And I I just had to overcome the fear. And the the thing that finally helped me do it 
was uh, with the, in addition to the fact that I just simply had to make the phone call. But, you know, right. at the beginning, it was like I would stand up, I would walk around, I'd pick up the phone, I'd sit down, I'd pick, put down the phone, I'd make a script, I'd throw away the script, I'd pick up the phone, I'd walk around, I'd read the Daily Variety. You know, like this was just to make a call, right? <laughs> like this is how scared I was. Wow. And what, original, what eventually I realized was that I was trying to sell people. Hmm. And that, that was just inherently not connected to who I was as a person. And, but that what I was really good at, kind of like you talked about, I, I was really good at helping people. Hmm. And, and I loved helping people. I've always loved helping people. And I've always felt like I'm at my best when I'm helping people. Hmm. And so when I stopped trying to sell and I just started thinking, I'm going to figure out how, where, if they need to talk to me, they must need something right there's something there's something missing there's something that they can't figure out and and i'm going to help them you know and i'm not going to sell them anything but i'm really going to try to help them i'm really going to try to figure out what they need and i'm really going to try to help them you know and and it, it, that resonated with me when you were talking about i'm going to give them this experience it takes them away from the boredom of their lives right like yeah. like yeah. It makes them more authentic and, and you know and in that you also find your own journey, you know, and, and like I, I always say to writers, like, if you want to learn to live a good life, all you have to do is write a good screenplay and you mm, learn how to live a good life because, you know, at the center of a good screenplay is a character who wants something so bad that they're willing to make new choices, you know, that, that change them. And they're willing to put up with the consequences of those choices. Mm. And they're willing to be bold, like you said, and make mistake and mistakes and, and be idiosyncratic themselves, you know? And um, that's what's at the center of, of a screenplay. And when, when you do that work of writing a screenplay, you actually learn how to be yourself, you know? And, and similarly, if you want to learn how to write a good screenplay, well, then you just have to learn how to live a better life. You know, which yes. is again, yes. the same thing. It's like, yeah. well, what's my theme? Like, why am I here? Like, what? Right. What matters? Yes. And then, what choices? What is a choice? How am I going to make a choice every day that brings me closer to being the person I want to be, even if I don't know how to be that person yet, or even if I don't know how to get there? Mm -hmm. And and you know, in in these, this is why I think writing is so therapeutic. When you do it right, you know. And when I mean right, I mean when you do it authentically, as opposed to trying to manipulate somebody or sell somebody on a your great idea or strike it rich. When you actually just do the work, you know, it, it's therapeutic because you're actually taking yourself on a journey, and yes. it becomes therapeutic to the people who read it too, because it, it it welcomes them into a different way about thinking about their own lives. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's really awesome. That's very, very true. That resonates with me. And it's funny that what you said about uh, how that, that close parallel exists between writing a screenplay and like living a life and sort of like, you know, writing your own narrative of who you are and like, you know, your own quote unquote hero's journey as a person that reminded me of some of my favorite advice that I ever heard about being an artist um, that always stuck in my head. And I heard this decades ago, um, I was, uh, if anybody, uh, knows me, they know that growing up, I was a massive uh, comic book geek and a massive like uh, music geek, uh, specifically hip hop. And, um, and so the, uh, 
the producer slash rapper who is the uh, maestro and the architect behind the Wu-Tang Clan, the RZA. I remember sitting in a supermarket when I was like in my, my teens and I was reading an interview with the RZA and somebody was asking him like, oh, well, you know, how do you, how does someone become a great producer like you? How does someone become as original as you are as a producer? And I remember Riz is saying that people asked him that question all the time and that producers would constantly come up to him and say like, how can I produce beats that are so original and strange and odd and unique? And how do you do that? How can I do what you do? And he just said that he always had to laugh because people are asking the wrong question. He said, it's not about like he like he would say to them, you could never do what I do because you're a boring person. You're a boring person. So any work you make is going to be boring. It's going to be work that's made by a, a dull, uninteresting person who has really common conventional sort of interests. And so what he would say to people that always stuck with me was he said, I would always tell producers and musicians, don't just think about your music. It's not about that. It's about you as a person. You got to make yourself, I think in his words, a dope ass motherfucker. And if you can make yourself a dope ass motherfucker. And he was like, look, I have a lot of interests that are unusual. I'm into Chinese philosophy and martial arts and cinema. And I have, you know, and I've done a lot of reading and I've lived, I've lived a life and I've, I've had experiences and I've filtered them through unique prisms. And I have my own little cosmology that I've built based on all these things that I've been uniquely passionate about. He would say to people, just go and fucking figure out who you are and explore things and learn things and have experiences in your life to the point where you can look at yourself in the mirror and just say like, okay, like I'm a dope ass motherfucker, you know, like I'm a cool person in all these different ways. Right. And you know, that's a constant journey for all of us. Like we're all aspiring to what Riz is talking about there. But, but he said, then you're going to be that cool motherfucker when you're walking your dog you're going to be that cool motherfucker when you're buying groceries at the grocery store, when you're interacting with your friends and your family or whatever. And then when you sit down to, to make beats or write screenplays, you're going to be that cool, unique motherfucker. And you're going to create work that also is imbued with that same sort of vibe that you've now cultivated as a person. And so he would just say like, you know, you guys are asking the wrong question. You know, it's not about how can I do what you do. It's like people who hear about a great artist and they're like, what kind of a pen does he use? What kind of a brush does he use? Like, that's not, that's not the secret. That's not where the secret sauce is. You know, you can give a great artist a number two pencil, you know, and, and they could draw you a masterpiece. And it's like the same thing with a screenwriter or a hip hop producer. And I think it kind of speaks to what you were saying. It's like, you have to cultivate yourself as a person. And I think that might sound scary or intimidating to people, particularly if someone's younger, but it shouldn't be because that should be like the journey that you want to be on, right? Is to make yourself a more interesting person. And then, you know, by osmosis, you know, that can't help but come out in the work. Because I think sometimes people think the work is so separate that it's this other thing outside of themselves. Like you can be a, you know, a person outside of your work and you're not connected to it. But like you said, then you're not, you're not doing it right. You have to have this sort of feedback loop with your work. And so I, I remember um, I was asked, uh, my, my old writing mentor um, who uh, taught at UCLA for many, many years, uh, Tim Albaugh, uh, who is a tremendous mentor to me and an amazing teacher, um, he asked me, and I was very um, touched, he asked me to be a guest speaker at his screenwriting class in the professionals program at UCLA a few years ago. And so I was sitting there kind of talking to a bunch of uh, screenwriting students, 
And I remember someone in the Q&A, one of the students asked me, what is the piece of advice or what is the question that you think would be most helpful for us, for you to answer yourself right now that no one ever asks you? Like, what would be the question that you could answer for all of us that would be the best thing for us to know that we're not going to ask you? Like, so it was a really cool question. So she was basically like, give yourself a Q and then give us the A. And I said, well, honestly, I said, look, I'll tell you guys something. You're probably not going to want to do this, most of you, because you're here at a very expensive film school and you probably, you know, a lot of you think very highly of yourselves already. And so I'm just going to drop this little seed for you, hopefully to look back on. And maybe just a couple people in this class will take this seriously 10 years from now. But I said, um, none of you are as good as you think you are. And it's not a product of anything other than like time and life and experience. And if you really want to get good fast, the things that I know that are the, the fastest accelerants that will help you get to someplace meaningful as a writer, I said to them, you should go fall in love and have a serious relationship with somebody because you're going to learn more about yourself in that process, through that process, than you could ever learn from a million screenwriting books or classes. You go fall in love and like actually give of yourself to someone, sacrifice, take a huge risk, open yourself up and be willing to be utterly obliterated because you know, you've know you given this other person that much power over you. Do that, have a relationship, fall in love, and then go find a therapist and go to therapy. <laughs> And go go talk about the stuff that you have never talked about and like really get to know yourself and examine yourself and find out why you are, you know, the person you are and look back at your family with an objective eye through the eyes of a professional and, and talk out why you have the issues you do. Because if you don't understand yourself as a person, then how the hell are you going to understand the characters you're creating, you know, because it's like you're writing in like you're it's like a like you're writing in darkness, you know, you don't have a connection to why you are the way you are. And that doesn't mean you get fixed overnight or you become like a perfectly healthy person overnight. Of course, that's not what happens, but at least you cultivate awareness and ideally you get better and healthier and all that. But all that goes into your writing. And I know for me, I spent a lot of my 30s in therapy and I've been in therapy on and off for, you know, well over a decade. And for me, like that was one of the things that helped my writing so much and I never expected it, but it gave me a much deeper reservoir of understanding of people to draw from. You know what I mean? It gave me a whole different framework. And I feel like honestly, my stories got a lot deeper and, you know, I was thinking about things on a lot more levels. And so that was super valuable. So yeah. So for what it's worth, fall in love, find a therapist. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how your workshop at the studio works. Oh, sure. Yeah. So, um, Jake, uh, you uh, gave me this incredible opportunity. I think it's been about a year now that I've been uh, doing this biweekly uh, writing workshop at the school. And, you know, we do it on Zoom and uh, I'm working with anywhere. It's a it's a small, intimate group of writers. You know, I think we've got around around six writers or so right now in my, my writing workshop. And I've basically uh, run this workshop uh, precisely in the mold of my own writer's group, which is one where there is no homework outside of the group. Um, we have writers bring in a reasonable amount of pages, let's say 10 pages or so, give or take to every meeting. And we will do a quick table read of the pages from each writer. And then after, and as we do the table read for those listening who are not familiar with, with what that is, it's really simple. The writer basically just casts the other writers as actors in their piece 
and then I will read the description. And uh, we have this really quick, fun table read, and then we discuss it and we critique it. And I like to make sure that everyone everyone says something during the critique and that everyone says uh, what they liked and what they didn't like. And you very quickly start to find out the commonalities of what's working and what's not. And for me, uh, it is just so enormously helpful to get your work up on its feet in front of a group of people. And it's been like an integral part of my process for the last two decades. And the time, the times in my career where I thought I didn't need a writer's group and I, and I didn't have one were the times where I really fell off the rails in terms of productivity. And so with the group that I do at the school, you know, it's every two weeks year round. It's not like it's a 10 week thing. It's every two weeks, like clockwork. We meet for three hours on Zoom. And I've been really heartened to see the progress of the writers I'm working with. I've got some amazing writers in the group, but they're also just really cool people. And so anytime you have a writing workshop or writing group that meets regularly, it's just as much like a support group, you know, as it is anything else. Because being a writer, as you know, as we know, is very challenging at times, and it's lonely, and it's frustrating, and it's heartbreaking, and it's all these things that it's hard to bear the weight of alone. But it makes it exponentially so much easier if you've got a cohort of people, your, your comrades, your peers, who you are now on this journey with. And so your successes and your failures are no longer just your own. They're shared with the group and vice versa. And so it's really like, it's a really cool thing. Um, I lead the group, I moderate it, and um, we have a lot of fun. You know, it's like a lot of laughter and a lot of jokes. And from the feedback I've gotten, everyone seems to be finding it super useful. And they've had, I think, some of the most productive writing years of their life because now they've got a deadline every two weeks and they got an audience you know, of their peers waiting for them. And that gives you a built-in accountability as a screenwriter, which I think is invaluable. Yeah, Steve is very humble, um, but I'm going to talk about the role that he plays um, because it, it's so profound. Um, you know, it's very rare. Um, you guys don't know this, but I put my teachers through hell before I hired them. <laughs> and, it, and it's because it, it's so rare to find somebody who can not only hold a writer's work, but also hold a writer's heart in their hand. And, um, and, and that's one of the things that I so admire about Steve is that you know in, in his group, it's not just about developing the writer's story, it's also about developing the writer. And, um, and he's just done such a beautiful job with this intimate group. Um, in, in you know, helping them not only grow as writers, but grow as artists, learn how to give feedback to each other that's gonna be the most valuable, learn how to deal with feedback that you don't know what to do with, have that mentorship when you're stuck, when you're going the wrong way, when the rewrite's not taking it to the next level, you know, and, and the opportunity to have that kind of guidance from a person with Steve's experience is really wonderful. And, um, so that that's one way of working with you. And the, the other way is ProTrack. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how ProTrack works. Yeah, sure. Uh, ProTrack is uh, another very unique thing that we do here at the Jacob Kruger Studio, where essentially it's a one-on-one -on -one mentorship program where, you know, writers work directly with a single mentor. And in this case, it would be me. And, uh, you know, we meet up on Zoom either every week or every two weeks or every month, at, you know, whatever pace a writer would like to kind of pursue this. And we just 
talk out their story and they will send me pages uh, prior to each meeting. And I will read those pages, make my notes, and then we'll get on a Zoom call and we'll just kind of talk really frankly, um, hopefully with uh, encouragement and kindness, but also with bluntness. And that's what I strive for is to kind of have a balance because I take it really seriously that someone is trying to improve and make their work better. And so it doesn't suit anybody to approach the material with kid gloves, but nor does it suit anyone to be unkind or harsh about things. And so I always make a point of really celebrating what the writers I work with in ProTrack um, or in my workshop, but specifically in this case in ProTrack, I really take the time to celebrate what they're doing well, because I think that's something that some instructors might glide past too quickly and I think it's important to tell a writer what they're good at. And so I like to focus on that, use that as a foundation, and then just say, look, no writer, professional or otherwise, is great at everything. So here's the stuff that I think you've got a real strength at. And honestly, here's the stuff where here are the elements that I think you could use some work. And then we talk about it in granular detail. I think the, the people that I work with would tell you I drive them nuts in terms of how much I nitpick the tiniest little things, you know? And it's because I really believe all that is super important. So from the macro to the micro in ProTrack, the cool thing is we have a lot of time together. You know, I get invested in, in people's stories and I don't want to get off a Zoom call until I feel like, you know, we've kind of solved a problem or we've got to a point where they've got a new angle on how to approach something. And so it's been really rewarding. And I love working with writers. And there's, you know, some writers who I've been working with now through ProTrack for, you know, for the whole time that I've been working at your school. I've had some people with me forever. And it's really rewarding to watch their careers start to blossom and them start to get meetings with managers and agents. And they'll send me emails like, Steve, oh my God, look who wrote to me. Oh my God, the script that we developed, all oh, these managers love it, you know, and it's cool. It reminds me of just like how exciting that is to have those first moments in your career. So it's really, really fun. It's really, really fun. But I also just, you know, I don't want people wasting their time. And so I, I try really hard to push the writers that I work with as hard as they're willing to be pushed, you know? And this is really, you know, the ProTrack program is basically our answer to grad school uh, here at the studio. You know, I have I have such an issue with the film schools. You know, um, I think they have good intentions, but I think their programs are backwards mm -hmm. uh, because you get two years of bliss, three years of bliss mm -hmm. where all you do is write. And then you graduate with three hundred thousand dollars of debt, which makes it impossible to be a writer. Yeah. Um, and then on top of that, not only do you have the debt, but you, you don't have the mentorship anymore. Right. So now you're out in the world and you're trying to, to make it and you don't have anyone to talk to. And, you know, maybe you find a writer's group and you can hope that they're good, you know, but maybe they're not, you know, and you, you're, you're learning the best case scenario. You're learning from people who know, know more than you do. And so, uh, the idea of ProTrack and the idea of the workshop is different writers learn best in different ways. Some people like one-on-one, -on -one, some people like to learn in a group, some people do a mixture of the two. But the goal is to give you lifelong mentorship, where at the beginning, you might be talking about what's a character, but yeah. five years later, you're talking about, okay, my agent gave me this note and I don't know what to do, or my showrunner has a different opinion than the network and I don't know which one to listen to, you know? Yeah. Um, where as you emerge in your career, you have that mentorship for life. Um, because I know I'm who I am because of the mentorship I received. You know, as you talk about, you're who you are because of your mentorship. Mm -hmm. And what's really beautiful about the program is to say it's a tiny fraction of the cost of grad school doesn't even cover it. 
You know, you could study with Steve at UCLA and spend 60 grand a year, or you could study with him here and spend $350 a month. Um, And so it's just a really wonderful opportunity um, for, for people who are really serious about their careers to talk about these programs and and figure out how to move forward with, with that kind of mentorship. And, and I'm just so happy and grateful that you're a part of our school and that 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 I get to work with you. So thank you. Thank you for your time and, and for opening yourself up in this way for us. Yeah, totally. Thank you so much, Jake. This has been lovely. I always uh, love talking about screenwriting and it's always a pleasure to chit chat with you. So, so thank you very much. I, I had a blast. Beautiful. I look forward to seeing you soon, Stephen. All right. For sure, Jake. Okay. Take care. If you're enjoying this podcast and it's helping your writing, then come study with me. You can do it for free every Thursday night as part of our Quarantinis program, where a faculty member and I do a deep dive into some aspect of screenwriting, share a writing exercise with our fabulous community of screenwriters, and even give a little bit of feedback. It's a really wonderful experience. It's free or by donation, and all donations that are made are supporting our COVID scholarship fund, where we've given away over $98,000 of scholarships since March to help our students who have been affected by the crisis afford our classes and afford to be able to continue in our program. So if you'd like to be a part of that, then come join us. It's every Thursday night, writeyourscreenplay.com slash quarantinis. 